It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. You hired a nanny for a doll? Where did you find her? How much did those boys tell you about what happened? The Apple TV series Servant has all the suspense, supernatural plots and twists M. Night Shyamalan is known for. But there's a twist even the filmmaker didn't see coming. A lawsuit by Francesca Gregorini claiming the TV series rips off her 2013 movie The Truth About Emmanuel. And the Ninth Circuit served up a twist of its own by reviving her lawsuit after a district court had dismissed it. Here to help us figure out the plot of the lawsuit, that is, is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Katten Rosenman. So, Terry, in what way does Gregorini allege that the TV series ripped off her movie? Well, June, both the movie and the television series on their face, tell the story of a grieving mother who has lost a baby and forms an attachment to a doll. And in both, a teenage nanny goes along with the mother and starts caring for this doll as if it were a real baby. So there are those superficial similarities, which in copyright law, we would call simply ideas. With respect to more specific allegations of similarities, there is in the original complaint filed by Ms. Gregorini allegations that the plot, themes, and dialogue are all similar. The problem I think that the district court judge had with this lawsuit and why he dismissed it is that there is a certain lack of specificity in that original complaint. Gregorini did specify certain things, such as both nannies form attachments with naive young women whom they compel to steal a bottle of wine, similar blocking of shots, shock reveals. But the judge said the alleged similarities pale in comparison to the differences. So here's the core problem with the district court judge's decision, in my opinion. It's this focus on differences between the two works. That's not the legal standard. The Ninth Circuit and other courts have said, we focus on what are the similarities 
and not what are the differences. This is not a balancing test where you put on one side the similarities and on the other side the differences. You say, ah, there are more differences than similarities, therefore we're going to dismiss the lawsuit. No, that's not the way it's done. The way it's supposed to be done is you focus just on the similarities and ask yourself, are there sufficient similarities that a reasonable juror might find copyright infringement. That's not well spelled out in the Ninth Circuit's decision reversing the district court judge, but it is the one thing that jumped off the page at me in the district court judge's decision and was probably working on the minds of the appellate court judges, even though they didn't expressly articulate it that way. Tell us more about the Ninth Circuit's reasons for unanimously telling the judge, you can't dismiss this lawsuit at this stage. So the decision on appeal largely focused on uh, procedural elements, and these procedural elements have been a bugaboo in the Ninth Circuit in copyright cases for over a decade now. The way the cases involving substantial similarity, remember, we're not talking about literal copyright infringement where you put the book on the Xerox machine and just copy the pages, or you simply run the movie without authorization. That's literal copyright infringement, not at issue here. What is at issue is substantial similarity. And for substantial similarity, we apply a two-part test known as the extrinsic test and the intrinsic test. On a motion to dismiss, which in general civil litigation in the United States federal court system is rare to start with, and even rarer in copyright cases. But on a motion to dismiss, all we consider is the extrinsic test. And the extrinsic test asks whether there are similarities, remember similarities, not differences, whether there are similarities between plot, themes, dialogue, mood, setting, characters, and sequence of events that are considered protectable elements under copyright law. So what should a district court judge do then? The just first thing the district court judge has to do is decide what's protectable and what's not protectable elements. So the general idea of a grieving mother is not protectable under copyright law. The idea of a doll being given humanistic features, being treated like a human, is not copyrightable. The fact that you focused on inducing a boyfriend to go steal a bottle of wine, that may well be copyrightable. What did not happen here at the district court level was the judge never attempted to separate the wheat from the chaff to figure out what were the copyrightable elements and what were the non-copyrightable elements. And then say, well, these copyrightable elements do have some similarities such that a reasonable juror might believe there was copyright infringement. That's what the district court did not do, in which the Ninth Circuit really wants to be done on a motion to dismiss. The Ninth Circuit said that dismissal of the lawsuit at this early stage was improper because, quote, reasonable minds could differ on whether the stories are substantially similar. <laughs> My question is, don't reasonable minds always differ on whether these things are similar? I mean, it seems like it's very subjective. You're absolutely right, June. And that's why the Ninth Circuit then followed those comments with a suggestion that it would be more appropriate here to allow experts to weigh in on this matter. And this has become increasingly common in the Ninth Circuit. We see experts being used more and more in copyright cases. And I would say there's a definite trend in the Ninth Circuit to almost requiring some sort of expert input before summary judgment or motion to dismiss is granted. In particular, I think the court here wanted experts to weigh in on whether the elements identified in the complaint as being substantially similar were 
simply what are known as scenes a faire. You know, is it common settings, common ideas, common themes? Is it common to have young teenagers try to get people to steal alcohol for them? But these are questions that are appropriate for experts in the field of film studies and film criticism who could weigh in. And the court pretty strongly suggested that on close calls, the court should allow experts to express their views on which elements are copyrightable and which are not copyrightable. And then the court can make a decision. Don't you end up with experts on either side of the issue? The plaintiff brings in experts that support her claim. The defendant brings in experts that support his claim in this case. And then the judge just decides which expert he finds more credible? Or worse, the judge decides that he or she cannot make up their mind over (laughs) which one is better and just turns the whole mess over to the jury. This is the core problem in the Ninth Circuit in copyright cases these days, cutting across medium. We see it in uh, in the music cases. We see it in the film and television cases. We see it in comic book cases, in regular book publishing cases. The Ninth Circuit seems to be making it so difficult to get rid of a non-meritorious lawsuit alleging copyright infringement in an early stage that it seems like every copyright case has to go to the jury. And that's not right. That's not the way the federal civil procedure system is designed to operate. We have motions to dismiss allowed. We have summary judgment motions allowed specifically to weed out weak lawsuits in advance and not to burden the jury system. And yet the Ninth Circuit seems to be making it just so hard for a defendant to get out of a lawsuit that they almost are going to get to a point where they stop fighting them and just start paying off claims from plaintiffs. Well, it's also really expensive, isn't it? Because if you can't get rid of it before discovery and you have to start calling experts and prepping for trial, I mean, it it makes all these cases really expensive, so they may settle them. And that's absolutely right. And often very expensive vis-a-vis the potential damages at stake in the cases. I mean, experts charge on an hourly rate basis and in many cases are as expensive or more expensive than the lawyers involved in the case. And so it adds on to the burden that the defendant has to endure to get rid of the lawsuit. On the other side of the equation, the copyright plaintiff is often represented, not always, but often represented by contingent fee lawyers, and so is not incurring a similar burden of expense. This is the third time in at least two years that the Ninth Circuit reversed a federal judge's decision to dismiss a copyright lawsuit. It also happened with the first movie, Pirates of the Caribbean, and The Shape of Water. And in The Shape of Water, discovery led to the plaintiff agreeing to dismiss the case. Do you know what happened there? Well, that situation is is very rare. I have seen situations where discovery proves that a copyright infringement case is so meritless that it makes no sense for the plaintiff to continue it particularly the plaintiff lawyer, with no prospect of a recovery, uh, will not want to invest time and money in it. But that is very rare. I don't think that we can, as a judicial system, simply assume that discovery is going to get to the truth or the bottom of the facts, and it will resolve itself. I think in the overwhelming majority of cases, discovery does nothing more than tee up a summary judgment motion, And under the standards that are emerging in the Ninth Circuit, district court judges are reluctant to take sides in a battle of experts 
And so that means the case simply goes to a jury trial. Most of the lawsuits having to do with movies and TV, the Hollywood type, are in the Ninth Circuit. We've often talked about how the Ninth Circuit and the Second Circuit are the two circuits that are well known for copyright claims. Does the Second Circuit treat these cases the same as the Ninth does? So the Second Circuit has a comparable two-part test involving um, the court assessing the extrinsic test and a jury assessing the intrinsic test. So these are similar, and indeed the remote origins of that test um, stem from cases in the Second Circuit, the first part of the 20th century. What is different is there seems to be a greater willingness in the Second Circuit to accept a district court's judgment with respect to either a motion to dismiss or a summary judgment motion. We have far more uh, music cases in the Second Circuit than television and film cases. Um, And so it's hard to know how Second Circuit would react in these television cases. But there just does seem to be a little bit more willingness at the Second Circuit to accept the district court's decision below. The Ninth Circuit, in contrast, seems to be trying to make it as hard as possible for a district court judge to get rid of a dubious copyright lawsuit without resorting to trial on the merits. Is this a new trend in the Ninth Circuit? And if so, is there something that set them off? Can't identify any single fact that set them off. But as you've said, this is is not brand new. You mentioned the three instances in which the Ninth Circuit has, in just a couple of years now, reversed district court decisions prior to a trial being held. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. In my mind, this 
trend, if you want to call it back, goes back at least a decade. And I'm sure if you studied earlier opinions, you might find the seeds of it. But I would not say it's brand new. I, I, I think there's just this notion in the Ninth Circuit jurisprudence that it is very difficult to determine the validity of a copyright infringement claim short of thorough discovery. And that is starting to reflect itself in decisions that we see, such as this case. Thanks, as always, Terry. That's Terrence Ross of Ken Mutin Rosenman. The Supreme Court refused to reinstate Bill Cosby's conviction for sexually assaulting a Temple University employee in 2004. The court rejected an appeal by Pennsylvania prosecutors in a case that became an emblem of the Me Too movement. Without comment, the justices left intact a Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling that the state reneged on an agreement not to prosecute Cosby. Now 84, Cosby was released from prison last year after serving almost three years of a three- to ten-year sentence. Joining me is Greg Storr, Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter. What was the basis for the appeal to the Supreme Court? Well, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court threw out Cosby's conviction, and what the court said was back when the first district attorney to look at the case decided not to prosecute, he put out a press release and, according to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, made a promise that Cosby wouldn't be prosecuted. Then, in a civil suit, Cosby relied on that decision, according to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, and testified in that civil suit and incriminated himself. And then a different district attorney came along and said, I am going to prosecute, and I'm going to use that civil testimony in the prosecution. So that's why the conviction was thrown out in the first place. And Pennsylvania prosecutors went to the U.S. Supreme Court saying that the Pennsylvania court had misunderstood the Fifth Amendment and the right against self-incrimination and that Cosby's reliance on this alleged promise was not reasonable. And what was the argument of Cosby's attorneys to the Supreme Court as to why it should not take the case? Well, Cosby's attorneys said there's no reason to to take up this case. This is a very fact-specific case that won't really apply more broadly than to Bill Cosby. Cosby's attorneys said it's not just about that press release that said that the district attorney had decided not to prosecute. There actually was an agreement, a non-prosecution agreement, and Bill Cosby relied on that agreement. It doesn't matter what exactly the press release said. There was an agreement, and uh, therefore his Fifth Amendment rights were violated, and the lower court got it right. That's what struck me. What's the legal question that the Supreme Court would decide? Because the whole thing seems based on the facts of this case, the odd facts. Yeah, and that may be why the Supreme Court decided not to take up the case. They may well have agreed with that assessment. From the standpoint of the prosecutors, they said the legal question here was that they didn't require, the Pennsylvania court did not require Bill Cosby to show that his reliance on the statements of the district attorney was reasonable. And they say that's a legal error. The court should have required a showing that, that Cosby acted reasonably. But we don't know what was said by the district attorney to Cosby's attorneys beyond the press release. Certainly what 
Cosby's lawyers argue what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court found was that it wasn't just the press release that he was relying on, that there was evidence that there was indeed an agreement that he wouldn't be prosecuted. And the motivation, they say, for that agreement was that that the, the district attorney has decided that it would be better to let the civil case go forward rather than hold the possibility of prosecution over Cosby's head and thus keep him from being able to testify in that civil case. This was one of the first major milestones of the Me Too movement. So this case has gotten a lot of publicity and, you know, prosecutors feel they have to keep pushing. Yeah, there was certainly a lot of, as more and more women came out with allegations against Bill Cosby, uh, there certainly was more pressure on prosecutors to to bring a case. Uh, This was really an emblem of the Me Too movement, and um, the decision to overturn his conviction was very much a blow to people on the side of of trying to hold people accountable for, for sexual misconduct. And the court also rejected a group of New York City school workers who wanted to stop the city from firing them because they hadn't gotten vaccinated. That was along the lines of other decisions they've made? Yeah, this is the same group that was turned away on February 11th by Justice Sonia Sotomayor. She's the justice who handles emergency matters out of New York. And what the workers did was to file with another justice, Neil Gorsuch, who then referred it to the full nine-member court. And so today, the full court did the same thing Sotomayor did. It turned away the request and and said, we're not going to intervene on behalf of these workers, uh, who uh, most or all of whom have, have since been fired. Is that often done? If one justice turned you away, you go to another justice? I thought they each had certain circuits that they handle appeals from. It's always a possibility. Usually it's not done, in part because the justice who handles the emergency request uh, always has the ability to to confer with his or her colleagues to kind of take their temperature and see if anybody else uh, disagrees with with their assessment and whether it might be more controversial. But um, in this case, the workers decided might as well give it a shot, uh, but it didn't work. It used to be more common, and it's especially common in death penalty cases, Thanks, Greg. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.